Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto here with our panel of dysfunctional experts to talk about what is happening with DACA. I'm sure most of you who are listening are aware that on June 18th of this year, the Supreme Court said no to the Trump administration's petition to end the DACA program. That ruling was widely hailed as a triumph for the undocumented community, but cannot be seen as a total rebuke of the Trump administration since it does leave the DACA program open to future legal challenges. That ruling came on the heels of the June 8th decision by Judge Dolly G of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. Judge G ordered the release of several hundred children held in three family detention centers, two in Texas, one in Colorado, to family or responsible guardians by July 17th of this year. These important events are the background for the conversation we are having today. We also have joining us Maria Frausto, a Venezuelan immigrant to the United States who works at a national nonprofit on behalf of the undocumented and other immigrants. Let's get to it. Hey, want to welcome everybody back to another episode of the uh, Reality Dysfunction. Today we're going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling on DACA and some of its long-term ramifications. I think we're also going to be looking at what does it mean for the uh, Chicano, Mexicano community and other Latino communities, you know, people who were born here, their participation in the immigration movement. One of the people that we have with us today is their first time on the uh, Reality Dysfunction, but we're super excited to have Maria Frosto here. We're just going to kind of turn it over to her so that she can uh, introduce herself and talk a little bit about the work that she does in the immigration movement. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Maria Frosto. I work in communications for a national immigration nonprofit that approaches immigration uh, from a three of uh, a four prong approach and beginning with litigation. So we, we challenge the government when they don't follow the immigration laws to protect or the rights of immigrants. Some things can get very technical, but our lawsuits are of impact. And so they affect not, not just one individual, but many. We also do a lot of research to educate policymakers, uh, members of Congress, and other advocates about immigration issues, everything from business and the workforce to some immigration bills that have been introduced in Congress throughout years, statistics about immigration processing in general. And we have a daily blog that analyzes every day what's going on in our immigration movement. And then our latest effort has been in working with communities with, um, that receive refugees, immigrants, or where there is a high level of, of immigration to understand how immigrants are received, how do they change that space, but also how do we integrate so that there is, we, we don't fall in that effect of like othering, you know, immigrants. And finally, we have also partnered with the American Immigration Lawyers Association to work on a, on a project that recruits, trains, and mentors lawyers who are not only immigration lawyers, but lawyers in other fields, so criminal justice, family law, um, you name it. 
so that they can help immigrants who are in in detention. I don't know how many of our followers, I mean, of your followers know this, but um, unlike criminal law, immigration is one of those fields that if, if you are detained, you don't have a right. I mean, you're not granted an appointed counsel from the government. So it's up to you to either pay for it or find a lawyer who can offer their services for free to represent you in that. So this was a project that began in 2016 and after the Trump administration basically went full force with their anti-immigrant uh, agenda, that project has grown. During family separation, we started with, I think, like 1,500 volunteers and right now we're at 10,000 volunteers. From lawyers to social workers to translators to psychi like psychologists, therapists, you name it. Everybody is pouring in in support for our immigrant community. That's an enormous jump. I mean, I know it, it's a, a gradual jump at the same time. Like it just didn't go from 1,500 to 10,000, but that's a- So in the peak, in the peak of family separation, yeah. it went from 1,500 to 6,000 in less than three weeks. Wow. It was, it was a lot of support and it was marvelous to see how people came to support. That's incredible. That, that's I, a big I, jump. Yeah. So I wanted to ask specifically about an open discussion to what the ruling that came down from the Supreme Court. And from your opinion, Maria, when you look at this, um, how do you think it affects our DACA students, Dreamer students, other undocumented peoples here in the U.S.? Like, how does that fit in and how does the narrative then change or continue, I guess? This case and the ruling is for sure, it's going to be a landmark case in the sense, maybe not so much in the laws, but definitely on how we as a country treat those young people who, who grew up here, who have contributed to this country, who have, I mean, this is their home. And with the DACA program, became a full-fledged member of our society with no fear. While this ruling is not necessarily permanent because there has to be some legislative action around it, I think it is historic because it shows what we can achieve when people who know about the laws, people who advocate and in affected individuals come together to advocate and speak up and like kind of mark their place in this country. So there's the fight is not over, <laughs> it still continues. It was really unexpected, it was an amazing surprise, but beyond that, it just shows the power of what can be achieved when you put hearts and minds together. When you educate also the American public about immigration, it is, it is amazing how little people who have the right to vote um, and elect officials know about our system and just perpetuate the, the misconception about what it means to come, you know, to the United States as an immigrant. I think the first, like, good fight was, I don't want to say good fight, but like, I am glad that the vast majority of, of the American public don't refer to our DACA, uh, you know, young children or people, because <laughs> I mean, they're probably my age too, as 
undocumented or illegal or they consider them part of their community they consider them their neighbors they consider them you know the nurse and doctors and teachers who like are part of their communities and so if anything I mean, the fight is not over. This doesn't solve our the problem or like the, the path to a permanent solution for our DACA recipients, but it definitely is an amazing support to educate, to get the support of the American public and to just show what contributions immigrants in general, but in this case, like DACA become, you know, the most visible example. So, Nothing will be, I mean, it definitely becomes a, unfortunately, a political weapon for people who are elected to Congress, for people who are elected to like the executive uh, branch. But I think that work needs to continue um, as communities, as immigrant advocates, as like members of, you know, of this country. We have to keep advocating for a more permanent solution for those that contribute day in and out. Like it, the, the amount of DACA recipients that have come out during the coronavirus pandemic to to be nurses, to be doctors, to be like putting their lives and the lives of their family at risk just shows that like those are things that you do for a country that you love. Those are things that you do for the community that you care for and a paper or law should not be holding them back. So more than like, I mean, this is a political, this is a, this is a fight in so many levels. It's a political, it's a legal one, but it's also a public opinion fight. So Maria, what has been a, the question I have is, what has been the most effective tool, vehicle, or approach to educating uh, the public on the issue in your perspective? I might be misquoting them, but the whole DACA movement um, says they go by the, by the philosophy of something around like present and unafraid. It's a generation, it's a group of people who are literally not afraid of anything and they will fight, you know, to the teeth and to, to stay here. What has been the most effective tool? Being out there, being out there and being able to put a person to this issue that probably not, I mean, people clearly don't understand. It is demystifying the understanding or, or you know, what the White House has wanted to, to put out there that, that immigrants or undocumented immigrants are, are criminals because they somehow broke some law. Although the system is more complicated than, than that. And the DACA group has done a great effort in, in explaining why the system doesn't even allow them to do the things, you know, in a certain way as the other rest of the country would like them to do. The other effective tool has been, because these DACA recipients have been out there and they have been advocating for themselves in their communities, is creating that alliance with members of their community who can become spokespeople for them, but also advocates, you know, in that route, in that space for them. That's the that last thing that you said, I think is, and, and when I, when I think about this issue and as I've watched it my entire life, issues of, you know, alleged or so-called illegality in terms of, for myself anyways, other Mexicans or, you know, well, Mexicans, right? Not Mexican Americans, but Mexicans, or like the way that that 
that's been directed towards me over the course of my lifetime, right? That I'm a wetback, I'm a beaner, I'm, I'm illegal, you know, all of these different things. But the last part that you said about getting out and finding people or making coalition with individuals in the community who become advocates, I think that that's really key. And it's one of the things since 2008 that has really bothered me about the Chicano community, the Mexican-American community, or even the Latino community here in the United States that, or that we're born here, right? For as many of us as there are, it seems like there's a real lack of participation in this whole movement. I mean, I don't want to say that people don't care about it, but I mean, it kind of seems like they don't care about it. Yeah, that really, that bothers me. I, I thought the other part that, that you said, and I think this is also important too, I mean, advocacy is such an important thing, you know, and figuring that out. But I think also remembering that the, the steps beyond advocacy are mobilizing and organizing, right? And how do we, as a community, and I would say not as a community of so-called undocumented people, but how do we as a community of Chicanos and Latinos who were actually born here in the United States, how do we begin to like mobilize and to organize around this issue? Because whether people realize it or not, this is an issue that affects all of us. I mean, if 10 million people who look like us nominally, right, can be declared illegal, then there's nothing stopping the rest of us from being the, the same way. Well, they started taking passports in Southern Texas about a year and about year and a half ago, right? And I'll tell you, my father was born at the exact time in the exact spot that they said that illegal birth certificates were issued. You know, what does that mean for, for somebody like me? They didn't take his passport because I know he doesn't have a passport, but there, there's a thing that that's happening here. And I, and I just really, I'm, I'm really deeply concerned about what I see is a lack of participation from our community. In that. But do you think it's a lack of people caring or, or a lack of direction on what to do about it? You know, I know that you, you can, I mean, okay, a lot of people are willing, a lot of people are willing to share a Facebook post about it. Right. I don't, I don't know that if, if given more to do on the issue that people wouldn't get more involved, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, I mean, there's not, when, when the issue pops up and when there's things going on here in Michigan, I see people coming out, maybe not in the numbers I'd like to see, but I don't know, just putting it out there. I mean, are, are people giving enough to do on it or not? I think immigration has historically, obviously, I mean, we, we, we learn and we advocate for the issues that we care about. And historically, immigration had been an issue that only immigrants or closest to immigrants or like in border cities would care about. Why? Because they affected them directly. They, it was their bread and butter. They saw it every day and they saw the implications of what it meant to be an immigrant, to immigrate, to be in a new place, to understand the law, get around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as much as, you know, like Trump is an anti-immigrant um, president, he one positive thing that he has done is he has brought immigration to the spotlight front and center for public um, discussion and so i mean there's good and bad things right with that he has 
perpetuated misconceptions about immigration, but at the same time, he has gotten others at least piqued the interest of those who have, you know, um, who either don't know about immigration, don't have an immigrant friend or a family member, or don't have, or are aware of the immigrant, like, you know, people in their communities. And so I think we have, you know, it's a very unique, it's, it's hard, but we should take advantage of, of this moment in history where immigration, or at, as long as it, it becomes front and center for public discussion. To your um, point, Daniel, of like what, like, what is it that we can do or why are we not doing enough? I think it also has to do with other competing like issues that communities are, you know, um, affected by. I mean, there could be economic reasons, there could be cultural reasons. I think the biggest positive thing that has come about the DACA movement has been creating those alliances. Like if you look, even the Supreme Court case, it was brought by an, a university. Why did they bring it? Because they had a lot of DACA recipient students. It was a big mass of, like it was a, a big part of their student body. So, you know, one action that I personally take, not only because I work on it, not only because I'm an immigrant and I care about it, is that I find anytime that I can, anyone that I meet to talk about immigration. Because this is a country that has a big history. It was built, you know, un with a big immigration history. So we, it's one of those issues that is under, like it's hidden. It's kind of, it, it is so weaved in into the fabric of what this country is that we take it for granted or we meaning like not we as um yeah we as a country take it for granted and we don't talk about it so find those opportunities start with you like it has to start with us let's start talking about it let's start sharing our immigration history let's start sharing the history of those that surround us you you mentioned like putting a face to it helps you mean like individual people who are maybe daca recipients and that sort of thing there's a young lady that we work with here in Saginaw, me and a few people. And a couple of years ago when I first met her, I mean, she was really reserved. You know, she didn't want to be interviewed by local media. She barely wanted to talk about it. But as we started working with her and kind of, you know, doing what we do around immigration here in Saginaw, which is to try to educate people and keep the issue a point of discussion. You know, we've done some town halls. We've had some immigration attorneys, Merck. Uh, people from Merck, Michigan Immigrant Rights Coalition do presentations, that sort of thing. I, I always ask for people who know folks who are undocumented or DACA to send them my way for our soup kitchen for our after school program, because I know here that, you know, they're safe. But this young lady went from that very reserved person to the other day, she was interviewed by the local TV station from mid-Michigan. Her face was out, her whole story was out. And I was just shocked to see that transformation in her. And I was really encouraged to see it because I know that sharing that story, I thought would be a big help. And then I made the mistake or, or whatever of reading the comments um, in the Facebook live feed for that. Never read the comments, dude. Oh Lord, it was, so, I mean, there were people, you know, making like, not, and I, wanna, I don't even wanna say low key threats to this woman, you know, and I just felt so bad that she really put herself out there like that. And I don't know if it helps somebody or not to see her personal story, but I just felt so bad and hope that she didn't read 
some of those comments, but I can't imagine she didn't. It is just horrible. If you guys want to look it up, it, they, there was a live stream. It was uh, TV 25, Mid-Michigan News. I just want to drop real quick. I think it's important to remember the history of immigration to, to this country. I think it's important to remember a couple of other things. That one, the history of immigration to this country is really rooted in uh, settler colonialism and in the displacement of indigenous people. I think many who you can see as represented by the, you know, their descendants are represented around this, this conversation. So that's important. The other thing that's important to remember is that the United States has always welcomed so-called quote unquote white immigration, right? Immigration was never a problem when those people could become or were to become white. I mean, it was maybe an issue at the moment, but as, as they developed generationally, never anything like the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Which stopped the, um, the immigration of uh, Chinese women and other people into the country, right? So you have a whole generation of people, men who came here to work, who were unable to start families or anything like that. Nothing like the repatriations of the 1930s that specifically targeted Mexicans or Operation Wetback in the 1950s that specifically targeted Mexicans. And I would actually argue those same really very specific anti-Mexican uh, policies are being carried out right now. You know, we'll figure out what to call that in the future. But I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, Maria. I think, it's, I think the, uh, studying the history of immigration to this country is vital. Like it is super important and that has to take place. But I think that we need to be real, not necessarily you, I'm not saying that you didn't understand this or that you didn't know this, but, but I think in the general conversation, we have to really challenge people when they say, oh, this country is, you know, was built on immigration. It was built on a certain type of immigration, right? And that's, I think, what's important to remember. Yeah, you're correct. You're correct, but I, I want to go beyond that. Like there's um, a great resource, the title is something, it's called something like, Did My Family Come Here Legally? And it talks about that immigration history from a, a legal perspective, right? And it talks about how people like in the late 1800s and early 1900s could come here, basically just show up at Ellis Island if they wanted to, you're right, mostly white, pass some kind of health test and then just go on free, right? Then laws got harsher and there were definitely discriminations for people from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa. And so I think we have to be aware, I mean, immigration should be, if we wanna call ourselves an immigrant, like a nation of immigrants, or if we wanna call ourselves, you know, keep liking the, the Statue of Liberty, immigration should be part of some kind of civil education course that our children take in school. And at, you know, it, it should be mandatory. So while yes, there were very restrictionist immigration laws, there were also good laws. The United States for the longest time until this administration had a very good asylum um, program. And many, many people were welcomed in this country as asylum seekers. There's until this administration, the diversity um, visa program existed to allow people from Africa to come to the United States or Asia or other, or even Latin America. It's not a perfect system. It definitely, it's not broken. It needs an upgrade, just like our iPhones need an upgrade on our software. So does our immigration system. And so our realities are different. The world is different. 
um, the way we mobilize in the world and the technology that allows us to do that has changed. And so does our immigration system. There is no line. I hate when people say, I mean, people who don't understand say, well, they need to get in line and doing the wrong way. You know, I feel like Americans have these, this obsession about making lines and that's, it's right. Like, sure. There has to be an orderly way of doing things, but guess what? For immigration, there is no line. And when, in, in those occasions where there is a line, it is so long that like some people just give up, but others can't even afford to give up. Other people's lives really depend on like being able to flee the countries and Danielle, you said something earlier about like putting the face and how, you know, a person in Michigan did it and people came out about it. I personally have been here 20 years. I came as a student, I stayed in, I worked, I contributed in like learning, paying taxes, investing in the economy, like you call it. I'm still not a US citizen. Like I am now in the past, like I can now apply if I wanted to, but that is how long a line is for anyone who wants to like, do something. So to that point, immigration needs to change. And yeah. then you know, I often had times where I would share my story and people would look at me like, but why don't you just become a citizen? Or like they would look at me surprised, like, oh wait, I didn't know it was that difficult. And so the more you speak about it, the more you tell other people and you share that story about yourself, about your neighbor, about your, I don't know, your parent, whoever it is, whatever immigrant you have in your life, even if it's like your doctor, who is not a family member, but like, I don't know, just making up, not making up because these are true cases. Just find that person, learn about them and share their story with others. And that's what I do with my two cousins. I was for my cousin's wife and son, his wife of five years and his five-year-old, four-year-old son to come over here. It still took a good year and a half to get him over here. And Alex, the same same uh, process as I, what I was trying to talk to you about fundraising. We started a Facebook Messenger group, and all my family members are like, "Okay, who can give twenty bucks? Who can give fifty bucks?" We got to a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, really quick. Got a lawyer. I mean, again, and I tell everybody the story of how long it took, the process, and everything. And then I say at the end, "Oh yeah, my cousin is an American citizen, and it still took him this long to get his wife." you know, and son over here. So don't tell me that it's not a longer process or even an impossible process for somebody who, who's not a citizen to get their family here or to come over here. It's not, it's not that easy. You know, and if yeah. you're trying to tell me that it's that easy, you don't know the process. You don't know a family member or a friend who, whoever has had to go through it. Well, it's definitely changed in our lifetime. And it's definitely yeah. gotten more difficult. I, and, I, yeah. That is absolutely And it's, difficult. you know, and if you are undocumented, um, there's so much fear. Even, you know, so my parents came here in the late 60s, and they actually met here in New York, so they didn't come over together. But, you know, they've been here basically 50 years, and there's still a fear of talking about it, right? Because what if somebody comes, and they're citizens now, but what if somebody comes and asks them for their paperwork, and they get revoked and you know they still have their green card they still have their original social security card when they first got here and i was like oh my god this is you know it's like a treasure trove right and and so it's you know very often and i think people who come here whether legally or not i think suffer and we 
we collectively in this country, I think in, in the US, don't make it easy, right? And I think from what happened, I think yesterday or the day before, right? The Florida governor, DeSantis was basically saying that COVID, oh, don't worry about COVID. COVID's only in those immigrant communities, those undocumented people, right? And it's like, that's the criminalization of our peoples that's happening, right? If you're brown and you look like you could pick in a field, right? That's what they're gonna say about you. And it doesn't matter where you come from. If that's what you look like, if you have an accent, you have that last name, you're gonna become a target. We live in New York, we're on the bus. My kid is 11. And some guy was like, I don't know exactly what he said about it because I just kind of heard him. He's like, oh, don't make me call ice on you, right? And I was like, and all I heard was ice. <laughs> and I was like, what? So I, I asked him, I'm like, what did he say? And he's like, I don't know. He said to me something about ice. You know, he didn't comprehend. So, you know, I turn around and I'm like, what are you trying to say to my kid, right? Like, tell me, S speak to me. Don't, don't try to intimidate my little kid, right? He's 11. And I think it's that and how we're using it to kind of instill fear and and quiet people and like that's the thing and it's and so like how do we like we're talking about creating that narrative so myself as a daughter of immigrants like first generation here you know like what is that story that we want to tell what's the narrative that we want to take a hold of how are we telling that story to not be afraid you know and, I, and i'll jump on in on that we were afraid i grew up undocumented we were afraid i can remember being 12 yeah 12 13 years old and, uh, you know, cutting my neighbor's lawn, helping them with their garden, and they would pay us. And my parents would tell us, make sure you don't tell anybody you're working. Make sure you're not telling anybody, you know? So, yeah, I like, I'm glad, I'm proud of these changes that have made that have come about. I think that's great. I agree with the point being made that slowly it's being ingrained. You know, yes, Trump's attacks and all the attacks that we have had, uh, they are a bit of a mixed blessing because they bring the issue to the forefront, although they do create some uncertainty in the lives of some, some. but yeah, that's a great slogan, undocumented, unafraid. And that brings me to, I was able to legalize due to Ronald Reagan's 1986 Simpson Act. Without that monumental legislation, I would probably still be undocumented my life would be completely different. My job would be just something completely different. I would not have been able to achieve some of the some of the things that I have been able to achieve because of that piece of paper. So my next question is: We understand Donald Trump is using it as a wedge issue. I think it's been used as a wedge issue by others. Again, what is the Democrats now? looking forward to the future of DACA and other programs, bringing, putting more faces on, on the issue. What's going to happen if Donald Trump loses and Joe Biden comes in? I, I just want to drop in a little bit right here and I'll make this real quick. The last couple of amnesties were enacted by Republicans. Yeah. And the reason they're not going to do this next one is because everybody that they amnestied became a Democrat. But then the question is, if that's true, then how come the Democrats don't do an amnesty? Because they, they always, what's yeah, that? I, I was going to say, I, one of the things I've always said to people when I sp speak about the issue, I would have voted for a Republican 
knowing the importance of legalization. I would have voted for a Republican had they come out and legalized more undocumented, you know, more more of us, more undocumented. But, I would have definitely made, I would have definitely might have made that choice. I'm, I wanna say, I'm gonna say something, I wanna jump in. Like, I think that gets to the heart of the, of the, of the real heart and the uncomfortable conversation, which is, you know, at the root, I mean, really getting down to what, what's the motivation is, is that white America is, I mean, completely afraid of the changing demographics. That cuts across uh, Democrat and Republican. I mean, that white progressive liberal, whatever, he may talk nice, but deep, deep down, a lot of them have a fear of the changing demographics as well. The Republican guys, I mean, they're straightforward with it. They don't sugarcoat it. You know where they're coming from. The Democrats kind of like, you know, they kind of try to act like it, but deep, deep down, they always want to control the narrative. They want to still have control of the power and, you know, be generous, but be able to pull back the power when they don't, when they want to, right? So why Democrats have been so weak about it and so lame about it is because they know deep, deep down, that's an issue that scares the heck out of even other liberal white people. So they don't advocate too much. They don't really, they always fall short and they're always weak about it because they know that's a big wedge issue. That's why the Republicans have been mining it forever because at base of the, of the Republican Party, they're okay with their racism. They're okay with saying, you know, America and, all pract- and, and, and for all practical purposes, they'll, they'll say it's a white country and our, our ancestors and our national identity and all, the, you know, which is all code for European Eurocentric. Right. They have they're comfortable with that. It's the Democrats that kind of have to like whitewash it, soft soap it. But deep at the root, they're just as scared of too brown, too strong. <laughs> I mean, they, you know? they ain't trying sure, to but how does that, go ahead. Yeah, how does that translate to the political sphere? Like we talk about um, Republicans being, you know, frontal about it, but they're also politically active. Do our communities become that politically active? Do we go out and vote? Do we call our legislators and tell them, I want you to pass this? I don't think we're active enough. We're not. No, we're not. Agreed, agreed. They'll listen if we become active. They will listen. And I think that your point, I think your point is really good one on, on two different levels, right? One, that we do not participate in the system under which we are forced to live. We, we don't, right? We, as a community, Chicano, Latino, whatever, I mean, it doesn't matter, you, you pick one. We do not have a sense of a political identity. It does not exist. And it doesn't exist for a number of reasons, but it doesn't exist. So the question is, how do we think about or how do we get involved in the system under which we you know, labor? But then the other part is, how do we begin to develop a, a political identity that allows us within the community to reach out past these other things because we're all about the cultural, but we're not about the political at all. And so that goes back to what I was trying to say or not trying to say what I did say um, earlier was the lack of participation even at the, that I see in the, uh, in the immigration movement. I think it's both things, Danny. I think it's that I think it's in on some levels that it's not that important to people. And I think on the other level, nobody's providing the vehicle 
or the vehicle isn't, isn't being created to push people into the political sphere. I think you're absolutely right, Maria. 100%. But I think that there are vehicles. I just think that they're very local, regional vehicles, right? Like here in New York, a really popular big one is the United We Dream, right? I see, but I'm also tapped into, I mean, that's, it's an issue that's important to me as a daughter. of immigrants. Okay, but wait a minute, let me, let me be really clear about this. I'm not saying that undocumented people aren't political and that they're not pushing it forward. They're absolutely doing that. As a matter of fact, they're making the rest of us look stupid in, in the way that they're pushing this issue forward. What I'm saying is that there's 10 million of them and there's 40, 45 million of us, right? Now, if the 45 million of us decided to join the 10 million of them, this issue would be settled quickly. That's, that's my point, right? But I just wanted to say that because you, I mean. No, I right. So in, in response, there's two things, right? I think one is, I think DACA is, and, and I think the movement now is relatively young people. Right. And I think, and if you look at Black Lives Matter, right, you're going to see it very similar. It's these young people who are coming together. Bernie Sanders was pushing the young electorate, right? And so, and I think that's where a lot of this energy and some of it being pushed to the forefront, that's where it's coming from, right? And, and two, I think there's part of a community that be like, I'm not an immigrant. It's not my problem. I don't care, right? The border came to me. I didn't go to the border. I didn't cross the border, right? You hear a lot of that. And I, and I think that is a part of our issue. That's why we don't talk about it. That's why we don't talk like it didn't affect me. Like I don't have an accent. My fam nobody in my family has an accent. And we know we hear that within our community. And so how do we combat that internally in our communities in order to make that effectual change? I mean, about six years ago, Pew Hispanic Center uh, released a report. Uh, it was a really good report, but it was all about is there national leadership in the Latino community? And basically in the report, what they said was there's not people that we consider that the Latino community considers national leaders. But the other thing that they did was they said, what are the important issues? And I got to tell you, uh, immigration was like number five on the list. You know, there was prison to pipeline, you know, there were schools, there were jobs, you know, all this. And immigration was like number five. That really blew me away. Because if you watch the news, it seems like that's the issue. Which You're I think creating speaks to the, the right. well, it speaks to the. But was it the fifth one? Because was the fifth I, I often ask, okay, but like, I almost feel that again, immigration is for some it's controversial, for some it's so far removed, for others it's like, oh, that can wait because it's so far removed that they don't understand the consequences of it. As you guys were talking, I was thinking about like when we talk about how do we unify as Latinos. I personally have a, uh, I'm always like internally contradicted with what do you mean by Latinos, right? We're diverse. And that's why, unfortunately, we don't unify politically. And so while there is a beauty of being diverse and different and both in generation and upbringing and even like the country of origin that has like of your heritage, there has to be a, a commonality, right? It can be the way you look, but even there, even there we're different, right? I always like to talk about or use Cubans and Cubans Americans as an example of what it means to be like politically active. While I do not agree with a lot of the ways that they view politics, we have to give it to them that they organized, 
they advocated for what they wanted. And for 40 something years, they had an embargo over an island that drove foreign policy for the United States. They got people elected to offices in Miami, in Florida, in other places where they lived. They, I mean, for other, um, obviously their immigration history and circumstances were different. And so they had opportunities to potentially aspire or go to school and become judges, teacher, I don't know, like be part of other, like working on, or be in, in places in employment that would allow them to advocate for other things. But yes, they have. the more yes, I, they I have. yeah, mm -hmm. but then why don't we do that? Like we have, let's use the power. I think about, and, and Francisco can speak to this. I'm always advocating in our dinner table. Please vote, please vote. Like we don't have to be doctors. We don't have to be lawyers. We don't have to be, but we are human beings that live here. I care about my children and I want to make sure that my son is not treated differently for other things. And I will advocate for better education. I will advocate for, to stop the person to like the school to person pipeline. I will advocate for things that I think are going to affect them. So regardless of like race, ethnicity, backgrounds, whatever you call it, there are core issues that we as people, parents, daughters, and whatever care about. So, I mean, I personally plan to advocate for the issues versus, I mean, of course, and I understand that I am doing it with like the responsibility that I will be speaking on behalf of women, Latina women, and potentially immigrants, right? And a mother, of course. So there, we all play different roles. And I don't want to box ourselves in just Latinos, because what does that even mean? But let's care about the issues that we do share. As Latinos, we have a love for family, right? I think that is something that like, we can say, or for the most part, is part of our culture right? That's something we should, we, we can advocate for. What are the things that we want to do to protect our family? Is it education? Is it more, more or less policing? I don't know, like focusing on those issues. Let's become more active politically. Let's, let's try to elect officials and people that look like us so that they can voice those things. But we have to start at home becoming politically active, just even going to the ballot and putting that secret like vote in that box. I think it's also important. You have my vote, Maria. So I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, my vote. You all heard it here first. We're launching. We're launching that campaign. There you go. <laughs> we're all supporting your campaign. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's also important that we do that. I mean, I think it's important to do that. Participation in the current political system is extremely important. I think that. I mean, think about think about um, think about Cesar Chavez. Think about Dolores Huerta. They used what they had in their hands. They advocated for their farm workers. They advocated for what they knew every single day. And well, they, they organized. They didn't, they didn't, okay, I was gonna say, they didn't just advocate. They organized. Right, they, they yeah, organized yeah. and mobilized. And they built, they built a, a they mm -hmm. built an organization that could carry those, those policies that they wanted enacted forward. And I, that's what I'm saying is that that's the flip side of the voting. Like we, sure, we should vote, but we should be building organization in our communities that can carry those policies forward. Because individually, we can't do that. And actually, I would also argue too that just voting doesn't necessarily do that either. Because just because we get somebody elected, if we don't have some sort of an organization to continue to pressure them to do the things that we want them to do, then, I mean, we're just sending people there to like do whatever they want to, which is what happens usually.
I've often thought maybe part of what we need to do, you know, going back, I think, and I agree, I think it was mentioned earlier, how some of these groups like United We Dream, Presented.org, some of these undocumented and unafraid organizations, they really are heroes. I really see them as being heroes for the courage they have shown for the organization, the political, the will that they have shown. So maybe that's another step, thinking about myself personally, you know, how do I sh share my story? Because part of the challenge that we face is fake news, fake data, cooked data, you know? I mean, Donald Trump's presidential election started with it. And that's constantly something that we're, we're having to deal with. And that's one of my concerns uh, is that, is it a wedge issue? You know, you can't talk about crime anymore because now you're attacking blacks. You can't attack the gays anymore. You know, they have the power. Hey, immigrants is the new American political, you know, hot potato. I think it's just, like I said before, I think it just goes back to that, that fear of the changing demographics. I mean, I think that's what really uh, got them. They attacked the immigrant because they don't like the color and the culture and where these immigrants are coming from. But I think what they really want to attack is the, is the, the children of those immigrants because those are the ones that are going to vote. Those are the ones that are going to, that you can't just strip their rights away. So in many ways, I think they go after like the Mexicano immigrant or the Latino immigrant because they don't want the Mexican-American. They don't want the Chicano because that's the one that can, can vote. They can't really go after us, even though they kind of try with the whole like birthright citizenship. That's what that motivation's about. That's why they're, they're, that's why they're dying to go after birthright, but that's a harder battle. Yeah. So no, they figure, right. you know. Yeah, you're right. It's the second generation that's more dangerous than the, than the first. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. And so you get, get, rid of the, get rid of daddy and mommy, you get rid of the kid, right? It's the kid that we really are afraid of. Well, then, then they're telling us. Then they're telling us that that is our biggest weapon, that that is our biggest power to educate our children, to make them aware and woke <laughs> of the issues that affect them and make them civil, like politically active children in the future. Word. So let's play their game better than they, they're playing it right now. Word. You go, sister. That's right. Yeah. I actually wanted to pose a question for Francisco. Francisco, you shared with us here that you grew up as an undocumented child. What would yourself now tell your old, your younger Francisco undocumented person in retrospect? And what would you tell other undocumented children um, having the experience that you've had now? Um, you know, I think I would have to piggyback on the point that you pointed out. You have to be unafraid you have to be unafraid because I think that that in itself hindered when my father died, there was a reporter who wanted to do a story on our family because of the hardships we were we were facing. And we said no, because we felt afraid that it would bring about greater difficulties and challenges to our family. But now, you know, in retrospect, that is, you know, I'm like, wow, that would have been really powerful. That would have really been something. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the bottom line. You have to be unafraid and you have to be willing to fight. And just like our parents, I think that's the other part we need to get back to. Just like our parents risked, took different challenges, made diff very difficult decisions to get us here, 
we also have to take some risk and face those difficult challenges in order to bring, take the next step and bring ourselves a little bit closer. And education, bottom line, education is the vehicle that can get us there. And when I say education, I don't necessarily mean textbooks or institutional, self-education, knowledge of self, like you said, raising those woke children. That is all we have for today. Clearly the struggle to reclaim freedom of movement for those who live in the Americas is far from over. The struggle to free the land from geopolitical borders that inhibit the free flow of indigenous peoples will end one day. We believe that by working together toward a new Chicano Latino indigenous politic, we can speed up that process. In the meantime, all of us here wish the best for you and your families as the cases of coronavirus spike dramatically across the Southwest United States. Occupied Aslan. Until next time, take care. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.